Well, if you're uh, just joining us this Sunday uh, here in person or online, uh, we have been doing a series in the book of Philippians, uh, that amazing letter in the second half of the Bible from the Apostle Paul while he's under house arrest in Rome uh, to the church in Philippi that he planted. And today we're going to be looking at the verses uh, in chapter 1 where Paul really lays out his heart. He just kind of takes off the, the cover and he just opens up and, and shows everyone exactly what his deepest thoughts, his deepest uh, desires of his heart are. What matters most to him. Now, it's pretty obvious that your priorities in life determine everything. A group of friends went deer hunting. There was four guys and they paired off in twos for the day. And that night, one of the hunters returned alone, staggering, and he was carrying an eight-point buck over his shoulder. And he staggers into camp, and he oh, lets down the deer. And the other hunter says, where's, uh, where's Harry? And he says, well, Harry had a stroke of some kind. He's a couple of miles back up the trail. And the guy's again, he's like, you left Harry, Larry, lying there? And you carried the deer back to camp? And the guy said, well, I didn't think anyone was going to steal Harry. <laughs> Priorities in life matter more than anything. Either our priorities are life-giving or they are life-taking. And in our first point today, we're going to look at what makes up the inner core of the Apostle Paul's convictions and principles. David Hume was a Scottish philosopher and historian in the 18th century. Any uh, university class on philosophy, you're going to have a section on David Hume. Uh, Hume was very skeptical about the Christian faith. He didn't believe the accounts of the miracles in the Bible, did not accept in any way that Jesus was fully God, that he was God's son, and uh, he didn't really believe that God was active in our world. He had a more of a deistic view of God, where he believed God was involved in creation, but then just like you wind up a clock and put it on a shelf, he kind of felt that after creation, God just kind of took his hands off and never has much to do with our world again. John Stott was a massively influential Christian writer and theologian, and he wrote a great book called Between Two Worlds. And he tells this incredible story about David Hume. And uh, David Hume uh, found himself in downtown London one day. And uh, he had this desire to go and hear George Whitfield preach. George Whitfield was probably the greatest preacher, greatest evangelist of the 18th century. And uh, as people had gone to America and the 13 colonies were established, Whitfield actually left England and went over and spent years in America and uh, went up and down the 13 colonies. And he was famous for, for very being not a racist person at all. He felt that every single person deserved to hear about the life-changing message of the gospel. And he would speak to native indigenous groups and he would speak to African Americans and he would speak to white settlers. Anyone who could find, he would listen to. Uh, 
And what happened was something that they look back in history and call the Great Awakening. And so many people came to faith. There was a huge revival. And God mightily used that dude, George Whitfield. But a couple years before uh, Whitfield left for America, David Hume found himself in downtown London. He's walking down the street really early in the morning, 5 o'clock, and he comes around the corner and bumps into this English guy, and the guy recognizes him. He says, wait a second, aren't you David Hume? And he says, yes, actually I am. And he says, where are you going at such an early hour? And he goes, well, I'm actually going to hear George Whitfield preach. He says, wait a second, if I'm accurate, you don't believe a word that George Whitfield says. And Hume answered, no, actually I don't, but he does. You see, conviction and passion can go a long, long way. When you and I have a truly and unshakable conviction, the world, even a skeptical world, can respect that enough to listen. And that is exactly what Philippians 1, 19 and 20 captures. Paul's passion and conviction. Paul writes, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul has his eye on eternity. Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce helps us. He says, when Paul says, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, he's actually not thinking primarily of his immediate release from custody or a favorable ruling from Caesar's court but his vindication in the heavenly court, his final salvation. Paul's incredible confidence springs from that reality. He's essentially saying if Jesus and I are good and I am doing what he wants me to do, then everything else in life is secondary. And it's on that foundation that Paul's able to make that incredible claim. I will in no way be ashamed but Christ will be exalted in my body. Paul knows that he's eventually going to go to trial. He will eventually stand before Caesar's tribunal. But personal humiliation isn't what Paul fears. He's already endured that multiple times over the last 15 years on his missionary journeys. What Paul cares most about is the approval of Jesus. The great part is that Paul believes what he preaches. Everything Paul has done in his life, all the wrong from the beginning to the end, he knows it's completely forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ, by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Paul lives each and every day in the freedom of the gospel. He knows Jesus approves of him, and so he can confidently say, Christ will be exalted in me. That's the Apostle Paul's titanium core. He is so solid in his convictions, his passion, and his faith that actually his, the effects of Paul's ministry still reverberate today. You and I 
just like the Apostle Paul, the amazing thing is you and I can grow into that same kind of conviction. Just like Paul, we can live in the freedom of the gospel. There's no guilt. Just like Paul, we can know that when we pray, Christ will be actually exalted in us, in our lives. Jesus will fulfill that promise. And very humbling, actually, the last week, I got to experience this multiple times. Uh, my wife, Lori, and I got to go to dinner with some longtime friends who are not believers. They live here in Ladysmith, and our church was really good to them. They went through a tragedy uh, about eight, nine years ago, and uh, church was amazing to them. It started this relationship, and we've had lots of contact since. And uh, we got to go to dinner with them on Friday night. And it was just such a cool thing to have them express to us. They said, you know, before you guys, before we encountered Ocean View, uh, we had never really thought anything about church. Never thought about God or Jesus or any of those things. But we've just been so impacted and so impressed. And it was such a cool feeling as Lori and I debriefed the evening later and we thought, you know, they haven't quite come to the point of accepting Christ. That's to come in the future. But they've taken a giant step towards him. I had another experience uh, just yesterday. Ran into a great Christian couple. They go to Bethel uh, Pentecostal here in town. And they had heard that, uh, that ultimately our ministry is winding up here and in November. And they had all the questions about that. And they wanted to talk. And they were just so kind and gracious. And they just said, you know, what the church has done, what God has used you and your family to do, uh, it's made a huge impression on the community. And it was kind of humbling, and at the same time, I thought, you know what? I actually think that's what Paul meant. Christ will be exalted in us, in our lives. What a beautiful thing that it's not just for the amazing Apostle Paul. It's for all of us. It's even for schmucks like me who make mistakes and sin and do all those kind of things, Christ will still be exalted in our lives. I think that's amazing. Well, Paul is not... Well, actually, uh, this is the way you can phrase it. In our words, in our actions, in our acts of love and service, our opportunities to proclaim the truth, Christ is exalted in us. Sometimes we think it's the big things, it's the big moment, but sometimes it's the little stuff. It's the little tiny ways we can show love to other people. Well, Paul isn't done. He's got more to tell the church in Philippi, and by extension, all of us sitting here or listening online this morning. He continues. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to be depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Those words of Paul kind of sound shocking the first time you read them. It almost sounds like Paul's kind of contemplating suicide. 
not so much out of despair, like most people would choose to end their life. They feel trapped, depressed, totally despairing, and they would choose to end their life. Paul's the 180 flip. He knows that after death, what awaits him in the face-to-face presence of Jesus is just so amazing, so beyond anything he can even imagine. Greater fulfillment, peace, joy, contentment than he's ever known. He's like, why am I staying here? That sounds so amazing. I want to be with Christ. Now, if this passage kind of had a theme song, I think you'd know exactly what it would be. There was a band, uh, English band called The Clash, and one of their big hits was Should I Stay or Should I Go? And uh, we're going to take a listen to a little clip from that song this morning. You can tell me if you think this would be the perfect soundtrack for these verses. I think we're going to play it. Next slide, Connie. Well, come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, it will be double. It was a big hit for the band, I think in 82 there, and uh, a year and a half later, Mick Jones, the lead singer, got kicked out of the band. And so all the fans all of a sudden wondered, oh, wait a second, was that song really about whether he should stay in the band or whether he should go? And they've said in multiple interviews since, no, no, it was actually about uh, Mick Jones and his on-again, off-again relationship with his girlfriend, Ellen Foley. He was like, should I stay? Should I go? All those kind of things. Uh, But for the Apostle Paul, it's a lot more serious than just a relationship with a girlfriend. The Apostle Paul is actually opening up his heart and his mind to the church in Philippi. Paul is just flat out honest with the Philippians. He says, I know paradise beyond imagining is waiting for me when I die. And I get to see Jesus face to face. If you want to know my feelings, yeah, it sounds amazing to move on from this life. Paul's experienced imprisonment, trial, persecution. But Paul also knows God's got his life in his hands. It isn't up to Paul to determine the amount of time he lives. That is a gift from God. So he will stay and make the most of his days for the benefit of the kingdom of God. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. Paul was driven primarily by his calling from Jesus and his love for other people. And he's specifically thinking here of the church in Philippi. We began this series by looking in the book of Acts, how the church was planted. And this woman, Lydia, she was a Christian businesswoman. She was the first person to come to faith in Philippi. And then it spread to her household. She employed people, servants in her household. They came to faith. And then Paul got chucked into prison, 
God freed him with this earthquake, and the jailer and his wife and his family and his servants all came to faith. And in miraculous ways, God began to build this church, and it tells us that they actually met in the courtyard of Lydia's home. She was wealthy, had a big courtyard in her home, and that's where this early church met. And when Paul writes these words, he's picturing these people from Philippi in his mind. He's picturing the local church. And he says, I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. Did you notice that Paul didn't say, I will continue with all of you for your progress, your duty to follow Jesus. Definitely, we're going to be extremely serious about this. We're not going to have any fun along the way. I'm really grumpy. I'm the Apostle Paul. That's not what he said. He says totally the opposite. He says, your progress and your joy in the faith. And if I'm honest, I think this took me well into my late 20s before I finally kind of dawned on me that, you know what, there's a good part that's maybe good about trying really hard and being disciplined in the Christian faith, and maybe that's a necessary stage we need to go through in our Christian walk. We need, we need to maybe have some structure around us and some, some clear guidelines. That's all wonderful. But ultimately, what carries us over a lifetime isn't an oppressive sense of duty in the Christian life. It's actually this freedom, this joy that propels our Christian life forward. Uh, When I did my master's degree at Regent College, a couple years ago, the school celebrated their 50th anniversary, and they did a really neat thing. They looked at all 50 years of graduating classes and they contacted one graduate from each of the classes and they did a profile on them. Where are you now? What are you doing? How has God used you in your life? They called it 50 in 50. And one of the stories totally captivated me. Amazing. So it's this man, his name is Duke Tang and uh, he is a chef in Ann Arbor, Michigan Duke was born in Vietnam, and when he was eight, his family had to flee Vietnam, and they got stuck in a refugee camp in the Philippines. They were there for quite a period of time. Then they got shuffled to a refugee camp in Hong Kong, and then they made application to come to the United States and eventually settled in California. So Duke's family somehow, they didn't tell us this part of the story, but they all came to faith. And uh, by 1994, he's a Christian young adult dude, and he's serving in Mexico. Uh, He is faithfully serving God and missions there. And he decides at that point, he said, you know what? I need a little more grounding. I need to go a little deeper. So he moves to Vancouver, goes to uh, Regent College. And while he was there, he had two roommates, and they decided, you know what? We got limited funds. This is an expensive city. We're going to cook our own meals. We're not going to go out all the time to eat. We're going to cook our own meals. And so his mother had been an amazing chef. And so he kept calling home going, Mom, how do you make that thing you used to make? And uh, so he goes, by trial and error, me and my two roommates, uh, we actually got to be pretty good amateur chefs. And he says, my, my interest in cooking uh, grew. So he finishes his master's degree in theology and marketplace ministry and all these things. And he wasn't sure exactly what his next step was. And all of a sudden, a friend calls. 
And this friend had inherited his family's restaurant, the whole building, the land, everything. And this guy was like, I have no clue how to run a restaurant. I have no chef's training. But he goes, you're an amazing chef. You should come be the head chef. And Doug was like, well, I don't have any formal training. He goes, ah, it doesn't matter. You're amazing. And so he takes this challenge on. And uh, in the last 20 years, he has built this restaurant into just an incredibly well-recognized culinary destination. And uh, he kind of drew on his background, and he made the Asian or the the menu kind of pan Asian, Vietnam, Philippines, Hong Kong, and he incorporates all these different styles. And so the restaurant's called Pacific Rim by Canna, and uh, it's been incredibly successful over the last twenty years. And uh, he's really settled into the groove. But he said when they began, he wanted to do this based on biblical principles. And uh, he enjoys life with his wife, Janet. He enjoys woodworking, playing sports with the kids. He's developed a great life. But he says, working faithfully in the restaurant context uh, is an extremely challenging industry. He says, most restaurants operate on the obvious principle that we have to make a profit. That's their primary goal. But he said, the guy who inherited the restaurant and him, they sat down together, they prayed about it, they planned. And he said, we founded our restaurant on a totally different principle. He said, we primarily want to go after hospitality. That's going to be our driving focus. And we want to be hospitable to all of our customers, but also to our staff. And that has worked out in really practical, beautiful ways. Uh, He says, at a daily staff dinner. Isn't that cool? You work there, you get to have a free meal every day. He says, we sit around a table, we serve each other, enjoy good food together. I strive to maintain an uplifting, caring, and respectful working environment because the workplace in the restaurant industry is often degrading and dehumanizing. What an amazing thing. This dude set out to run his business in a completely God-honoring way. This is what he says about food. He says, food is a means of nourishment, enjoyment, and it's central to life in God's abundant goodness. He says, preparing cooking food needs to be done with care, integrity, gratitude for God's bounty. At the same time, food can be elevated above its place. He says, I believe cooking good food is valuable and worthwhile. But the food is never more important than the people it's serving. And then he says this amazing statement. I love this. He says, good good food brings people joy and nourishment, but it also brings them together at the table in community with one another. It provides a context for relationship and fellowship. And on a Thanksgiving Sunday, I thought, what a cool practical example of someone who is living out the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 in a really practical way as he runs that business. And when Paul says, for your progress and your joy in the faith, I think part of what Paul has in mind is not just when we get to gather here on a Sunday morning, as amazing and awesome as that is, and celebrate communion together and worship, It also matters Monday to Friday 
when each of us divides everyone's in their workplaces or their schools, their jobs, whatever God calls us to, we're meant to live out that joy of Christ inside of us. Sounds like a pretty cool restaurant. If I'm ever in Ann Arbor, I'm going to go check it out. Well, we've covered some significant ground today in this amazing book of Philippians. As we journey through, I hope you are picking up and appreciating more and more why a lot of people say this is their favorite little letter in the second half of the Bible. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul really pulled back the covers, showed us his heart. We've had two central thoughts this morning. Number one, Paul's titanium core of conviction and passion. As Jesus continues to work on me, work on you, I pray that we will have our own David Hume, George Whitfield moments, where even the most skeptical people in our circles will give us a hearing because they see our convictions lived out with passion. Secondly, we saw the choice for the Apostle Paul. Should I stay or should I go? Paul chose to stay. We explored one example, this guy who owns a restaurant. You have different environments to work that out in. Maybe you're a student, maybe you're a construction worker, maybe you're a mill worker, maybe you're a nurse or an artist, maybe you're retired and you have opportunity with your neighbors. Wherever you find yourself, may God make us as others-centered, as other people-focused as the Apostle Paul. You see, Paul knew it was so valuable for him to stay. Even though he was chained up in an under-house arrest, he knew that every single Roman soldier chained up to him for four hours a day needed to hear the gospel. He knew that that church in Philippi that he was writing to needed to grow in their joy and in their progress in the faith. And when I step back and I look at all of that, I think, you know what? That is a life worth living. Amen? Amen. Rebecca, come and pray for us.